Well, this morning, it's my joy to introduce this morning's guest preacher. Michael McKittrick uh, is preaching the word to us this morning. Michael is a church planting resident and elder candidate at the Vine Church in Madison. Now, he's preparing to plant Eastside Church with uh, somebody that some of us are familiar with, Ben Hacker. And so Ben Hacker is Drew Hacker, one of our elders, and he's a, a pastor here. He is part of the worship team. He's a worship pastor. He is um, Ben's brother. And so Ben and Michael will be co-pastoring this church plant in the Madison area called East Side Church. Now, Michael and I go way back. We go back to seminary. I was a part-time student at TED's, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and Michael was a seminary student there as well. And I would drive down a couple days a week and go to take classes while I was a a full-time youth pastor here. And Michael was one of the guys that really helped to make my time at Trinity uh, even better because he befriended me. I felt a little bit like an outsider because I was a part-time student. There are all these these, uh, guys who are full-time students, and he brought me into the group a little bit and, and would always go out of his way to make me feel welcome and invite me to things. And Michael and I stayed in contact. We would run into each other since, since seminary. We'd run into each other at conferences and, and, and stay in touch a little bit here and there. And then recently, he shared with me the, the plans. This is probably about a year ago that they would be planting a church in the Madison area. And, and so we talked a little bit about that. And then he, he followed up with that a few months later and said, would, would Woodridge possibly be interested in financially supporting this church plant? And we are a church that wants to support church plants. We want to send out people to, to plant churches, but we also want to partner with those who are planting churches that, that might be blessed by some financial resources. So in the past few years, we've set aside resources specifically for church planting. We had Michael come and share with us his, his plan for church planting in Madison. Uh, as elders, we listened to that. We prayed with him. And we've decided to set aside some funds for Michael's church plant. And so we wanted him to come and preach the word to us so that you would all be a little bit more familiar with with Michael. So, Michael, would you come up? And I'm going to pray for Michael, and then we will hear God's word preached from Psalm 2. Father, I thank you so much for this man who loves your word and who loves the gospel and, uh, and his family who are here with us this morning. I pray that you would bless him with great joy as he brings your word. He points us to Christ from Psalm 2 and edifies the saints. I pray that he would have great confidence in your word. It's always a little bit difficult to come to a church that you're not that familiar with and preach your word, and yet your word is always true, and and it cuts through the hardest of hearts. And so we pray, Father, that you would use Michael to proclaim the truth of the gospel, and that we would be strengthened as a church because of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, Woodridge uh, Community Church. Uh, as Luke said, my name is Michael. I'm here with my wife, Heather, and our three girls. Uh, so we're just excited to be here with you, worshiping. It was a joy from my heart just to hear the word of Christ dwelling richly among us through song this morning. just loved the songs we sang together and hearing your voices, worshiping the same God that we love. And so it's just a joy to be here. I've heard a lot about Woodridge Church from Luke over the years, so it's sweet to be here, to meet you. Uh, just, just a real privilege to be here this morning. I just can't say that enough. Just so thankful for our common heart for Christ, our common heart to see his name exalted in our state, in our world, to see the name of Christ exalted through disciples made, churches planted, people treasuring Jesus above all. What a beautiful uh, just mission statement you guys have. So just really grateful to be here this morning. And I'll be continuing in just our series in, in Psalms. And the Psalms are just this beautiful book, right? They, they're meant to not only speak truth to our mind, 
but they're meant to evoke something in our hearts. You know, music has that power to, to touch not just our minds, but our hearts, right? And the Psalms were, were the songbook of God's people. And so I really think that Psalm 1 and 2, you, you see this, they kind of set the tone for all of the book of Psalm. They're kind of the, the intro that sets up the major themes. And, and both of them are, are interested in this idea of what does it mean to experience the blessed life with God. And so Psalm 1 reminds us that it's about how you respond to his word. And in Psalm 2, we're going to see it's about how you respond to God's king. That is the key. How do you respond to the king? And I think this is a question that's important to ask because I think most of us, whether either we don't know, maybe, maybe you're newer to Christianity this morning, or maybe you've been around for a while, but practically, the busyness of life, we just kind of let that reality of God's king on his throne sometimes just fade to the background a bit. And it's not driving us on this daily and hourly by hourly basis. And so Psalm 2 wants to kind of remind us again of that reality, to pull back the curtain and remind us what's really going on, who God's king really is, and to tune our hearts to love him and respond to him rightly. And this psalm just has a, a beautiful structure that kind of draws our hearts into that. In verses 1 to 3, we'll see that you've got the problem, these, these nations in rebellion to God. And then verses 4 to 9, we'll see God's response to that problem. And then the psalmist will call us to respond at the very end in verses 10 through 12. Because the psalmist wants us, God wants us through Psalm 2 to see that God's king can be a refuge for us instead of one who brings wrath. But it depends on how we respond. So let me pray for God to help me preach his word faithfully and for God to help us to lean in and listen to his word this morning. So let's pray. Father, just so grateful this morning that you are a God who is not far off. But you speak to us. You don't leave us in the dark, but you show us yourself in your word so that our hearts can be tuned to love you as we were made to be. So I pray that you would help me to speak your words and only your words this morning. I pray you'd help all of us to lean in and listen, to see, to taste the goodness of your King. So be with us this morning. Amen. Let me, pray, let me read Psalm 2 for us. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings... Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. 
Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Our first section, the problem, the psalmist right away just launches right into this, this scenario and he uses just this parallelism, stating the same thing multiple ways in different lines to build this picture. He says, why do the nations rage and the people's plots? And then the, he says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. The, the nations, the peoples, the kings, the rulers, there's this common united rebellion, he says in verse two, against the Lord and against his anointed. And for them, the problem is clear in verse 3. They are in bondage. They have cords wrapped around them. They need to throw off, to cast off. They see God's rule over them not as good as it was intended to be, but as a burdensome bondage. And so they want to reject it. They see it just as limits that infringe on them. And this is actually the oldest problem of how we view God. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3. When man was first in the garden with God, and he gave them only one rule. Just don't eat from one tree. Everything else is yours. Bountiful provision, kindness, goodness. And Satan comes along and says, don't you see? God's not out for your good. His rules are bondage. He's limiting you. Reach out and take the fruits, and you'll be free. Don't sit under his rule. Be your own gods. Then, then you will be happy. And they take, and human history has been ravaged by the effects of that ever since. When we rejected God's good rule, we didn't end up with something better. We ended up with something worse. And you see the same pattern over and over again in human history, recorded in the pages of the Bible, but recorded in the pages of human history. Whenever we start to view, as these nations and peoples did, the problem as being God's rules or bondage and rejecting it, we get ourselves into natural trouble. But all of us, Scripture says, are born with this tendency to want to reject God's good rules. There's that tendency in our hearts to want to go our own way. And for some of us, either in the past or now, that kind of resistance, that rebellion looks very active. You can think about me around the world, countries where governments actively persecute and kill Christians, actively working against God. Or you can think of someone who's a, a militant atheist and has this hard heart and really just out to destroy religion. But I think this, this posture of resisting God's good boundaries is also shows up kind of more passively sometimes in our hearts and lives. Not this act of rejection, but just, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to deal with that. I'm just not going to embrace those rules. I'm just going to kind of go my own way. And there's this passive rejection. There's this refusing or ignoring of God's rules. Saying, no, I'm, I'm not going to be bound by that. I'm going my own way. And maybe even a little bit of a mockery. Like, what? The idea of God being king over me? That's ridiculous. It really struck home to me this kind of, this heart of rebellion towards God recently when I was watching with some friends the, the newest Avengers movie, Infinity War. And there's a, a scene where the Guardians of the Galaxy run into the Avengers of Earth, and they don't know whether they're on each other's side or whether they're on the bad guy's side. And so Doctor Strange says, I'm only, only going to ask you this one time. Which master... Do you serve? 
Peter Quill says, which master do I serve? What am I supposed to say, Jesus? And laughter broke out in the theater. And my heart was grieved. Jesus is so good, so kind, so gracious, so patient in bringing his judgment upon the very people who would laugh at him. And yet that spirit is so common in our culture, and maybe it's common in your heart. The idea of Jesus, the idea of God as ruler over me, that's ridiculous. I am my own master. But this laughter isn't worth it because already in verse 1, we read that the people's plot in vain. It's in vain. It doesn't work. Rejecting God will not work. It only makes sense to live life without God. The equation only balances, so to speak, that way if you take God out of the equation. But the psalmist won't let us do that. And so we look at how God responds in verses 4 through 9. And ironically... Rejection of God is a laughing matter, says the psalmist. It's just not the rebels who are laughing. Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. God is the one who is laughing. And it's not a comedic laugh. The Lord holds them in derision. He's like, this is ridiculous. It's the picture that popped in my mind was just, you know, when you have maybe a toddler who's really angry at their parents because they're enforcing the law, and they're like, well, well, I don't like you, and you're going to be in time out now, and like they're, they're disobeying, but you almost want to laugh because it's so ridiculous. Like they don't have the power to do that. They don't have the authority to do that. They're actually in the wrong, and no matter what they say, it's still going to end up the way mom and dad's good authority wants it to be, and it's like you almost laugh. Like this is ridiculous. Because God is not worried about this rebellion. God is not a king who has to send out spies to find out what what the rebels are doing. And he's not sitting around his command table with with angels saying, guys, how do we handle this? How how can we contain this rebellion? No, it says in verse 4 that he's sitting in heaven. He's just sitting down. He's not pacing frantically, looking at what's going on, anxious and worried, he's sitting down at rest. He knows. He knows he's in control. Nothing is going to be able to shake his rule. He's sitting down. The picture is of a mighty king sitting on his throne. And you can imagine a couple of ants kind of gather at the foot of this throne of this powerful warrior. And they're like, we're going to overthrow you. And the king just laughs. He's like, I could crush you with my boot without even getting up from my chair if I wanted to. This isn't isn't a laughing matter on your end, rejecting me. It's not going to work. Think of a song by uh, Regina Spector called Laughing With. And in the chorus, she sings, "Um, God can be funny at a cocktail party when listening to a good God-themed joke. God can be funny when you're told if you just pray the right thing, he'll, he'll give you money. God can be so hilarious. But then all the lines in the verses go, but no one's laughing at God when. And she goes over scenario after scenario. The policeman knocking at your door late at night. The call from the doctor. And it's a sober reminder that when actually reality crashes in, we're not laughing anymore. And that's what the psalmist wants us to see here. This is not a laughing matter. It's easy to laugh 
in a theater surrounded by other people who are laughing with you. But the psalmist is saying, let's pull back the curtain and see what's really going on here. There's a, there's a sobering reality the, the psalmist wants us to see. God is enthroned. And, and no one, he says, will be laughing in verse 5 when God speaks to them in his wrath and terrifies them in his fury. See, God is so patient, so, so patient, so kind. But there will come a day when he will speak and it will be the end. And those who are opposed to him, it will not be a laughing matter. He will speak in wrath and fury and he will, and he will appoint his king, verse six, finally and fully one day. In verse 8, he will give to this king all the nations as his possession. In verse 9, we see that this king, for all the nations that are rebelled, he will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a pottery vessel. It'll be that easy. The power discrepancy is so huge. You can't ultimately face God in the end as a rebel. Can't. It's, it's pointless. You can try all you want. It will never work. As, as I was reflecting on the psalm, I was just reading some sports news one day and reading how LeBron James, I'm not a big basketball fan, but I was just reading about how he's gone to 10 straight NBA championships. Now, he hasn't won all of them, but it blew me away that every general manager of every team in the Eastern Conference for 10 years has had one goal, to beat LeBron. And no matter their scheming, no matter the trades they've made to get the right players, they just can't do it. It's like they can't, it's like he's unstoppable to get to the NBA championship. And I can guarantee you, probably none of those general managers ever take LeBron lightly or laugh at him. They know he is a great player. That's just one small picture, I think, of how we're meant to see God. Unstoppable in what he's going to do. So if you are opposed to him, that is not good news. And the picture, actually, that the Bible gives us found in Revelation 19. So hold on to your spot in Psalm 2, but flip over to Revelation 19 for a minute, if you have your Bible. And starting at verse 11, the Apostle John's given this vision of the day when the king will be fully installed. He says this, sorry, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see that picture that he gives? Did you hear the echoes from Psalm 2? The king ruling the nations with a rod of iron, judging them in righteousness, 
The picture there is that he tramples God's enemies like in a wine press where you have grapes in a barrel and you trample on them. And he doesn't even have to fight. Verse 15 said that the word comes from his mouth and it strikes down the enemies. There's no fight at the end. There's no epic battle between good and evil at the end. There's no battle. It's just a word spoken and it's done. The power of the king fully enthroned. The problem, says the psalmist, is not how will God deal with the rebellion of humanity. It's not the problem. The problem is how will rebel humans ever stand before God and not face judgment? How can anyone who has ever rebelled against him stand in the presence of this just king? And so that's where he turns to next. He invites us to respond in light of this. So look at verses 10 through 12 with me. He says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. See, the psalmist is saying, you've got a warning. You've got a chance. You have a chance to actually stop and think about who is your master. It's a question we so rarely think about. We go about our days with our to-do lists, and our vacations and all these things aren't bad, but this question can sometimes drift into the background as if it's not even there. Who is your master? And the psalmist says, be wise. Think about it. Be careful. Your choice matters. You've got a chance now. There's a warning. And so he invites us, verse 11, to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. The call, the picture here is of of a king in ancient times who would be sitting on his throne and you would come and you would kneel and he would hold out his hand with his signet ring and you would kiss it as a sign of allegiance to him. As a sign of saying, I'm coming under your authority. I'm going to serve you now. This This is the invitation the psalmist invites. You don't have to be a rebel. You can come and submit to his good kingship. If you don't, he says in verse 12, the son will be angry and you will perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. If you don't bend the knee to God's king, you will perish. There's no way around it. That's what's going to happen. But it doesn't have to end that way. As even though this psalm is a sobering reality, look at how it ends, verse 12, very last line. Not sobering reality, but joy. Blessed. Blessed. It's good, it's joyful for those who take refuge in him. You don't have to face judgment. That's not the only option. There's refuge. There's rest. There's salvation for those who bend the knee and kiss the sun. And that's only because of who this king is. See, most ancient kings treated rebellions very harshly. So in AD 70, for example, when the Jews had rebelled again, the Romans said, that's it, we're done. And they raised Jerusalem to the ground. This is how we deal with rebels. And that was common. You crush them. Utterly, You make sure they never rebel again. Even today in most countries, including America, technically on the books, the charge of treason carries with it the death penalty. 
If you rebel, if you are treasonous, you deserve death. But God's king is different than all the ancient kings. God's king wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a stable. Born of a virgin, a poor virgin, who was engaged to be married to a poor carpenter, who grew up in backwater towns, and yet identified with his people through baptism by John the Baptist. And at that baptism, God said, echoing the words of Psalm 2 here, you are my beloved son. You're my son. And this son who did nothing wrong ever, the only human being that never rebelled once in word, deed, or thought, who was absolutely perfect, died on a cross as a rebel, crucified between two insurrectionists. He died, not because it happened to me in no control, but because he chose as the king to say, I know I could come and bring judgment on everyone, but instead I will die for the penalty of cosmic treason so those who repent, who choose to trust in me, can have life. That's the kind of king he is. And then God raised them from the dead, proving that he is his beloved son, and that if you trust in him, you have life and refuge and rest, not judgment. This is the gospel. This is what the early church and the church throughout history has preached. And you can see this in Acts 13. When Paul is in Antioch, just, just listen to this, this section of his sermon with Psalm 2 in your background. You'll see all the echoes. In Acts 13, verse 26, he says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. That's the opposition of the rulers, right? And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people, and we bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Skip to verse uh, 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Do you hear those echoes? The peoples, the nations, the rulers opposed to Jesus. Innocent, yet killed, but then raised as proof of his sonship, raised. And he quotes Psalm 2 to say, see, this is the proof. He is his son. And now he offers forgiveness of sins and freedom from everything the law could not free you of. The law can only condemn. But in Jesus, you're freed. There is pardon available for guilty rebels. You know what pardon is, right? It's when the ruler who has the right authority says, all of your crimes, they don't exist anymore. They're gone. 
You're treated as if you never, ever committed them. And that's what Jesus offers to those who trust in him. And this is why it's worth it to bend the knee and kiss him, to kiss his hand. Because he's good. He's a good king. He loves us. James Montgomery Boyce, one pastor, has this beautiful line. He says, the hand that we are to kiss bears nail marks for you. The hand we are to kiss bears nail marks for you. That's why I can throw aside my pride and kneel and submit to this king because I can trust him. He's good. He's good. And I know sometimes it's still hard to wrestle with why does God still have to judge? And there's a lot we could say about that. But Psalm 2 wants us to see you don't have to face judgment. There's pardon available. Just kneel, kiss the son's hand, trust him, and you will find refuge and blessing. And we need to see this because the reality is that when we go about our everyday life, people are not reminding us of this reality, right? You don't go to work and have your boss say, remember, work hard today because there's a God in heaven and he's holy and just and you're not. And so right, that doesn't happen, right? It doesn't happen when you turn on the news. It doesn't happen when you turn on the TV. And that's why we have to go to the word. And the psalmist says, open your eyes and see. There is a God. He's holy. We've rebelled against him. There is judgment coming. Don't mess around. But today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. C.S. Lewis is so good often with words. I love how he just summarizes this. He says, Christians think God is going to land in force. We do not know when, but we can guess why he's delaying. He wants to give us the chance of joining his side freely. I do not suppose you and I would have thought much of a Frenchman who waited until the Allies were marching into Germany, and then he announced he was on our side. God will invade but I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when he does. When that happens, it is the end of the world. When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade all right, but what is the good of saying you are on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else something it never entered your head to conceive, comes crashing in. Something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. That will not be the time for choosing It'll be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen, whether we realized it before or not. Now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. This is what Psalm 2 says. Be wise, be warned. Kiss the sun and find refuge or 
face wrath. And some of you, maybe even this morning, are realizing you've never truly reckoned with this reality. And maybe even right now, God is pressing upon you the reality that apart from finding refuge in Jesus, you are in big trouble. I just want to say, if you're feeling that this morning, call out to God. He is a merciful Savior. Find refuge in Him. Admit your need of Him and you are guilty. And He will answer and deliver and save. But maybe others of you this morning, you, you've done that. You, you would say, yeah, I have, I've knelt. I, I've submitted to him. Don't just tune out right now. Because it's not just an initial pledge of kneeling before God that he wants. Now remember verse 11 of Psalm 2 says, we are to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Now someone who has truly knelt the knee to King Jesus serves him with fear and with this joyful trembling in an ongoing way. And not this bad fear of like afraid of him, but the kind of fear you have when you use a power tool or when you stand by Niagara Falls and you know that there's power here that if misused, if mishandled, if, if approached wrongly, is gonna end really badly for you. And so there's an awe, there's this respect and it shapes how we live. There's a right awareness, and it's not devoid of joy. No, we're told that we rejoice in the midst even of this trembling, even in the midst of this, this awe. And so the question I've been wrestling with myself, I want you to wrestle with is, is this what characterizes our lives? A right fear of God that leads to serving him joyfully, or are our lives controlled by other fears? The fear of what people think of us. The fear of losing our comfort and security. I think those are the two biggies for most human hearts. I want to bend the knee to Jesus and serve him as long as it doesn't cost too much. Because there are other fears other than the fear of God controlling me. And these fears rob us from really serving him. And so we need to see him rightly. And this is how the early church applied the psalm. Look at Acts 4 just very briefly with me. Peter and John were arrested for speaking of Jesus. In verse 23 of Acts 4, it says, When they are released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and note the quote from Psalm 2, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. But now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So they, when they face opposition, face fear of persecution, fear of what the authorities might think of them, they went to Psalm 2 and said, God, remind us of Psalm 2. 
Remind us how you are the sovereign Lord. You are enthroned. You are not anxious. You are in charge of it all. We saw it played out. They tried to oppose you. They tried to take out Jesus and the very opposition led to the fulfillment of your plan. So we can trust you. You're in charge. Everything happened according to your plan. And so give us boldness to speak that we might serve you with fear of you, not fear of others and opposition. I wonder if it's because even as they read those first three verses of Psalm 2, maybe they're also glancing down at verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This is what God says to his king. And maybe they remembered the very words of Jesus where he says, I am the one with all authority. Go and make disciples of what? All nations. Why? Because Jesus is the king of all the nations. God gave all the nations into his hands. They belong to him. So go, speak. They're not trying to build their own kingdom. They're not trying to build a political empire. These disciples, this early church were saying, we want to see Jesus exalted amongst the nations, whatever it costs us. I love their prayer. And I find myself asking, why are there not more prayers like that in my life and in our churches? Why is it that if the reality of Psalm 2 is true, that God really is in control and sovereign, why is it that when suffering and persecution comes, we're so tempted to pray for comfort instead of to pray for boldness? Help us serve you. You're the king that's in charge. Help us serve you with joy. We don't need to be afraid the world. And maybe it's because we've lost sight of the God of some too. Maybe it's because in our everyday rhythms and habits, we've been dulled. Our eyes keep getting trained to what the news says, to what the internet says. And that shapes our view of the world instead of allowing the word of God to shape our view of the world. And the word of God to say, no, no, no. It might look like it's all falling apart, but it's not. God is sitting down at work, building his kingdom. And yeah, there's no promises he's going to support any of our kingdoms. So if we're out trying to build our own kingdoms, you better be afraid. They can fall. But God's kingdom, that ain't going to fall. That ain't going to fall, friends. So you have confidence. And so it's easy, I think, to say, yeah, I've, I've, I've knelt. I've kissed the hand of the sun. I've run to him for refuge. But I think Psalm 2 wants us to also ask, well, if you've done that, are you serving him with fear and joy? Is that actually showing up in your life? Or does your life reveal that maybe practically speaking, you serve a different kingdom? You're serving a different king. But there's only one king who offers pardon. There's only one king who's actually in charge, and it's Jesus. And so he says this morning through Psalm 2, run to me to find pardon and forgiveness. Kneel, kiss my hand, and then joyfully serve me. That's why we make disciples. Because there are people out there that have not heard this message and need to hear it. 
There are people out there that belong to King Jesus and he wants them to be part of his kingdom. He says, you gotta go and speak, serve me, go preach, make disciples, plant churches so that all nations will be gathered around my throne one day when I'm fully exalted. So may we love and trust him as we await that day. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much that you are a God that is indeed powerful and sovereign and majestic and yet also gracious, merciful, slow to anger, full of steadfast love. And you say, come. Stop living for yourself or anything else. Come, kneel and find forgiveness and pardon and freedom and joy in me. So I pray, Father, every person here this morning would do that. And I pray that that would fuel us, this vision of you, to serve you with joy, to ask in our lives, are we actually serving you or something else? And that you would help us to repent of whatever other kingdom we're serving and instead say, I want to serve you, Jesus. You're the only thing worth fearing. I don't need to fear anything else but you. So give me boldness to serve you for your glory and our good. Amen.